Well, it is great to see you this morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start at the very beginning. And if you're a Sound of Music fan, that's a very good place to start, isn't it? Yeah, so that's where we're going to begin today. And, and as we take a look at the book of Genesis, I do want you to know it is the book of beginnings. Most scholars believe that Moses wrote this as part of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and that's attributed to, to Moses. And, and, and they believe that it was passed down as verbal history, and then at some point it became written history, and then Moses based his writing uh, based on the inspiration of God and, and those stories as they were passed down. And so we have every reason to believe that Genesis from chapter 1 forward in Scripture is completely the Word of God, completely true, and completely reliable. And so that's what we're going to be taking a look at over the course of this summer. Now, as we look at this book, and as we look at at Genesis, specifically Genesis Genesis chapter 1, there are three questions that people are always asking. I, I don't know anybody who at some point in their life, they may not ask it all the time, but at some point in their life, they've asked these three questions. One of them is, where did I come from? One of them is, where am I going? And one of them is, why am I here? Uh, Sometimes, every time I use Siri on my GPS, I get to the space where I'm on the highway and I'm asking those three questions. Where did I come from? Where am I going? Why am I here, Siri? You're supposed to be able to know where I'm going and all those things. And so, at some point, you've asked that question. Where did I come from? Where am I going? And why am I here? And you know, knowing your history, knowing, knowing your lineage, knowing where you came from can be such an important part of who you are. In my own life, I've done a little bit of research in my own ancestry. And my uncle, Jerry, he's done actually a lot of research. He passed away several years ago, but he's done a lot of research in, into our family history. My name, actually, let's go one step further. My son's name, my firstborn son, is Cademan Edward Balthrop. That's his name. His middle name is Edward. My middle name is Chad Edward Balthrop. And the reason why our names are that is because my father's name is Charles Edward Balthrop. And his father's name was Oval Edward Balthrop. I don't know if that tradition will continue, but it's definitely one of those things where where I came from influenced what I named my firstborn son, which influenced what, what I was named. I know that in my family, we have this history of, of having people in our family who are interested in law enforcement. Um, Frank New was my great-great-grandfather, and he was a U.S. Marshal in Indian Territory. He patrolled Indian Territory, which became Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Kansas. That, that, was, that was his patrol, and, and he did that. My uncle Jerry was a, was a law enforcement officer, who, too. He was a police officer. He actually started in the Army military police. He was, he was in the, uh, the airborne uh, portion of the Army. He, in Vietnam, he jumped out of an airplane, and his parachute didn't open. And uh, his, his, his second chute didn't open either, and he fell into a rice paddy. He landed the right way, broke every bone in his body, and that ended his time in Vietnam, but he lived a good 50 years after that. And it was, it's just amazing to see that in my family, there are these stories of people who were involved in protecting others and in law enforcement that has shaped the way I think about the way our nation should be run, and it shapes the way I think about protecting my own family and protecting others, and, and the admiration I have for those who serve in the military and the and and just that story of my uncle. And, and now I have a daughter who's interested in law enforcement. She's not sure if she's interested in the investigation side or the, or the legislative side, but she's in, interested in that. It just seems to be something that's been passed from one generation to another. I have a, a, a great uncle who was a Baptist pastor, 
And even before that, there are, there are three Cobb brothers that lived in Europe, and they were Mennonites. And one of those, Peter Cobb, was a Mennonite pastor, and they moved from England over to the United States. And now here I am, a pastor as well. That's absolutely influenced the way that I think. Now, it's not all law enforcement and preachers in my family. There's a man named George Hoy. He was my great-great-grand-uncle. George Hoy was shot to death by Wyatt Earp in, in Dodge City. And so um, we're not all, you know, law enforcement people. Sometimes we're lawbreakers. And I'm not going to confess the times that I've done something to break the law either at this moment because it's being recorded. I'm not going to do that. But our history, our ancestry, where we come from matters. And it shapes the way we think about who we are, doesn't it? It shapes the way we think about who we are. And what we see in Genesis chapter 1 is we see the story of the beginning. Now, there's going to be several things that we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about science a little bit this morning. We're going to talk about, actually, very little. We're going to talk about, are we, is, is the earth an old earth, or is the earth a young earth? But we're not really going to settle the answer on those questions, because there are bigger questions for us to answer. So we're going to see some things in there. But, but before we read Genesis chapter 1, I know that because of the, the tension that exists between science and faith. I know that there may be some of you who are sitting here today thinking, well, I believe in spirituality, and I believe in Jesus, and I believe in faith, but I just don't know if I really believe Genesis chapter 1 is true. And I, can I tell you, I understand. I understand why you might question that. That's, questions are never a bad thing, but, but I, just, I have a question for you, and the question is this. If you don't start believing the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 then where do you start? How many chapters in do you go before you start believing? Is it Genesis chapter 3 where the fall happens? Well, I don't know about that. How about Genesis chapter 11 where the Tower of Babel happens and they build this tower to heaven? What is, or maybe we just skip Genesis altogether and we go to Exodus and we start believing that. Now, where exactly, if you don't start believing at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where do you start believing? I had a friend who used to call that Dalmatian theology. Dalmatian theology, the Bible is inspired in spots and God inspires me to spot the spots, right? <laughs> um, that's not exactly how it works. And so I would suggest to you that as we read Genesis chapter 1, that this is the inspired word of God. And we're going to see some things about the way science and the Bible work together that cause them not to be contradictory, but to cause them to be complementary. And it's all in our approach. It's something that I hope we have a courageous approach to science and the Bible. I hope we don't ever back down or step down or step away from the idea that we can be scientists and we can be people of faith at the same time. We can cling to the scientific method and we can cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ all at the same time. And there are some things about the story of Genesis that you may look at and you go, you know what, I thought I remembered that differently than that because it's been maybe a while since you've read it. And so today, we're going to read all of Genesis chapter 1. Normally, I would invite you to stand in honor of reading God's Word, but today I'm just going to ask us to remain seated because maybe it's been a while since you've read the, in the entire story of creation. We're going to go Genesis chapter 1 all the way through that story, so I'm just going to have you read with me, and we're going to remain seated as we do that. Is that all right? All right, that sounds good. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, and we're just going to read the story of creation. Here we go, the story of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. 
Now, I just have to stop right there. Then God said, let there be light. God gets the very first word, right? He gets the very first word. You don't have to turn there, but in Revelation chapter 21, verse 6, God says, it is finished. God gets the first word. God gets the last word. Then God said, verse 3, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And let it, uh, thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abound according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature, according to its kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food, also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed... It was very good. 
So the evening and the morning were the sixth today. And we're going to keep going into chapter 2 a little bit. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. This is the word of the Lord. It's an incredible story, isn't it? It's an incredible beginning that we have. Did you notice the number of times that God said, I did this according to its kind, and after doing this according to its kind, it was good. It was good. Did you notice that? That's a, that's a remarkable thing. Did you notice the order in which things were made? It's almost like day one and day four are related. Day one, God creates light and darkness. Day four, he creates something to put in the light and the darkness, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day two, God creates the, 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 the firmament, the, the heavens above and the waters below. And on day five, it's like he takes this incredible canvas and he puts fish in the sea and birds in the air. And on day three, day three, God creates the dry land. He creates the earth and the seas. And, and, and on day five, he creates all of the animals and he creates humanity to go into it. And, and it just, it's just this, there's this incredible canvas that God keeps creating. And as you look at Genesis chapter one, one of the things that you see is that you see the story happens in a very broad sense. And then it's like God says, okay, let's take a more narrow look at this. And then when you get to Genesis chapter 2, it's like he goes back and tells the story all over again, but instead of it being from a broad sense and then to a more narrow sense, it's an even more narrow sense where he's talking about the creation of humanity and Adam and Eve. And you see that in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now this book is a wholly remarkable book. It's a wholly remarkable book because it's not really, it has history in it, but it's not exactly a book of history. It's not just history. But when we talk about the Bible, every time it speaks historically, it's historically accurate. That's one of the things that you're going to find true about this word. This Bible talks about money. It talks about finances. It talks about the economy. But it's not really a financial book. However, every time it speaks financially, it can be trusted. It's trustworthy and it's accurate. And in the same sense, this book is not a book of science. That's not the intent behind this book. Yet when this book makes a statement that has a scientific implication, that implication is completely accurate. Let me show you something. Right at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Science would say that there's time and there's space and there's matter, right? Time, space, and matter. In the beginning, there's time. God created the heavens, there's space, and the earth, and there's matter. 
You see how that works? And even inside time, there's past, present, and future. Even in time space, there's height, width, and depth. Even inside matter, there's, there's solid, there's liquid, and there's gas. There's even gas. If you, want to tie, if you want to find the area of a square, if you want to find the area of a square, you don't take height plus width plus depth. You take height times width times depth. If you make all those one, that equals one. And we think about God as being, Behold, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's not exactly an accurate, completely understandable representation of the Trinity, but at least it has some mathematical significance to it. When the Bible speaks mathematically, it's not a book of math, but when it does, it speaks accurately. So what do you do? What do you do in these moments when science and faith seem to contradict or seem to be at tension with one another? Well, there's some things that are just interesting about the way science works and the way theology works. First off, there are, there are some incredible scientists, men like Stephen Hawking, men like Albert Einstein, men like Niels deGrasse Tyson. Some of those men are, are passionate atheists. Some of them are more agnostic in their faith. And, and, but, but they would all say the same thing about science. They would say that one of the things that science does is every time there's a scientific discovery, what it does is it knocks humanity off an arrogant pedestal. And it knocks him down and makes him a little bit more humble. Because with every question we find an answer to, there's one more question to follow after. So scientifically, the study of something through the scientific method, it shouldn't make us more arrogant. It actually, if we do it right, according to men like Hawking and deGrasse Tyson and Einstein, if we, if we study science properly, it shouldn't make us more arrogant. It actually should make us more humble because it removes us from the center a little bit more. Remember, there was a time in our history when everyone thought that humanity, that the earth was the center of the universe. And then we realized, no, 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 maybe it's the sun that's the center of our universe. And then we realized, no, 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 maybe it's not the sun that's the center of the universe. Maybe our galaxy is at the center of the No, 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 it's not the galaxy that's at the center of the universe. We're actually these very small creatures who live for a very short amount of time in the midst of this very vast, very large universe. And so the proper study of science... The proper study of science actually shouldn't increase our arrogance. It actually should increase our humility. And you know how that's related to theology in the Bible? What's related, it's related to theology in the Bible in this way. Our study of theology in the Bible, the, more, the closer we get to God, the more we understand about Scripture, it should knock us off that pedestal of arrogance. And it should make us that much more humble because we get to see ourselves in light of this incredible God who loves us with an everlasting love, who is holy in a way that we can't fathom, yet has chosen to save us anyway, and has chosen to make himself knowable and known to us and relatable to us anyway. The proper study of science should make us humble. The proper study of theology should make us humble. As a matter of fact, I'd like to say it like this. If your theology causes you to like people less, you're doing it wrong. It's really that simple. The proper study of God, the proper study of His Word, the proper study of theology ought to produce in you the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It ought to allow you to produce in others, or at least to plant in others, the fruit of the Spirit. So if your study of theology and doctrine, if your study of God, if your understanding of who God is causes you to become more arrogant, if it, if it causes you to become 
um, more arrogant and, and like people less, if it doesn't produce the fruit of the Spirit in you or in someone else, <laughs> you're doing it wrong. And if, you're, and if you're studying the world through science, guess what? If it makes you more arrogant, you've missed something. Your observation isn't based on observation. It's really based on a version of faith that's not God-centered. It's based on a version of faith that's man-centered. And we've all seen where that's gotten us. See, so here's the big doctrine that we're defending today. Here's the idea that we're talking about. It's the idea that the the biblical account of creation reveals that God is the sovereign creator. That all he creates is good and that humanity is his special creation in whom he delights. That's what scripture teaches. That's what we read just now in Genesis chapter 1. We saw that, that, that this doctrine of creation, it reveals that all that God creates is good. That God is the sovereign creator and that man, that humanity is his special creation in whom he delights. And so how do we justify that with what science says? Well, first off, I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you. Don't be afraid of science. Be courageous in the, fa- in, in the face of science. Science is a system of observation and examination. That's really what science is. That's really all. It's not a faith. It's not a declaration of absolutes. It's actually a way to view things. It's a way to view the world. And actually, theology, apologetics, hermeneutics, the study of scripture, all of those big theological words, it's really just that. It's the scientific view of scripture. It's the observation and the examination of what do we see about who we are in light of who God is, in light of what scripture says. And so science and faith have that in common. We're observing things about our world. Here's another thing. Scientific observation attempts to, be, attempts to reveal what may be known about creation. Scientific observation attempts to reveal what, be, what may be known about creation. Here's how that's related to theology. Scientific, uh, scriptural observation reveals what may be known about God. Those two things are related. Scientific observation reveals what can be known about creation. Scriptural observation reveals what can be known about God. Um, take, it, take a moment to turn to Romans chapter 1 for just a minute. Romans chapter 1. Let's see, see something that, that is said here. Actually, God encourages, to, encourages us to study creation. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. It says, uh, verse 16. Listen to this. In verse 16 of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Here it is. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they were without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What may be known of God is revealed in creation. And so God actually encourages us to study His world, to study His creation. He takes great delight. He takes great delight in His people studying this world that He created. He takes great delight in helping us to see who he is through his creation. And so I hope that we see that today. Here's another truth about science and faith. Here's just another truth about the way science and faith work together. Any apparent, any apparent conflict or contradiction between scientific theories and scriptural truth, you know what that really does? 
it reveals the limits of our scientific knowledge and the lack of understanding we have in scriptural truth. So every time you hear a scientific theory that appears to contradict scripture, I would encourage you to study the science more and study the scripture more. Study the science more and study the scripture more. Why? Well, because God, that verse in Romans chapter 1 where it talks about um, that what may be known of God is manifest in his creation. The Greek word for manifest there is phanaru. It literally means it's been put on open public display. God has made, it's his pleasure to put on open public display what may be known of him. And so my hope is that every time you come across this moment where your faith seems challenged because something scientific has been spoken that seems to contradict something scriptural, here's my hope, is that you won't run from it, that you won't be afraid of it, that you won't be fearful of it, but that you'll take a moment to study it. Look into it, because what may be known of God is fanaru. It's on open public display. Study it. Study it by observation and an examination, and then do the same thing with Scripture, by observation and examination, and let's just see. And then have the maturity to have great conversations with friends. Have the maturity to have great conversations with family members, to recognize that we can disagree and learn from one another. I have a friend who used to say that we should surround ourselves with smart people. I love that idea. I do that all the time. I'm not nearly as smart as I am uh, on my own as when I am when I'm surrounded by smart people. I look way better because of the people that I surround myself with. But once I'm done surrounding myself with smart people, you know what I want to do? I want to surround myself with smart people who disagree with me. Because if they're smart people who disagree with me, then maybe they have something to learn from me, and maybe I have something to learn from them. There's a debate. You can, you, you can take the, the, the Big Bang Theory people and the evolutionists, and you can set them on one side but, and, and say, okay, we, maybe we disagree with them, maybe we like them, maybe we don't like them. We, theologically, we ought to love them, right? That, that's the, the way that ought to work. But, but even within Christianity, for those people who say, I believe Genesis 1-1 is completely true and, and everything about it is completely true, there's, a, there's an internal debate about whether or not the earth is an old earth or the earth is a young earth. There's a debate about whether or not the Big Bang really happened or did God, use, uh, did God just spring us to life from nothing or, or is evolution true? Those are all debates that are, I think they're worthy debates and how we have those debates matters. Here's the, the ultimate question, old earth or young earth? If you found out that the earth was really, really old, would that change your faith? Would that change the fact that God did it? Would it change the fact that God is the creator? If you found out that the earth was a really young earth, would that change your faith? Because didn't, didn't God do it, whether it's old or whether it's young? God did it. God, God created that. It says from the very beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If the mechanism he used was a big bang, Sometimes I think, man, God spoke, and it was. That sounds like a big bang to me. I'm not sure if that's scientifically accurate. I'm not sure if that's the way God did it. But, but if, if it were proven beyond a shadow of a doubt to be true, would it really change your faith? The reason why is because the bang had to come from somewhere. God spoke, and bang, it was. Regardless of the mechanisms that God used, God is the creator. God is the source. God is the one 
who brings creation into being. And that's the first thing, really, that we see in this passage, is that God is the sovereign creator of all things. No matter at what point you begin, no matter what point you begin, God is the sovereign creator of all things. And there's a reality that I, th- that I hope we can capture when we say that God is the sovereign creator of all things. I hope you can recognize you can trust his power. You can trust his power. It's interesting to see how people today function and people today act, especially people who are of people of faith. Man, we, we hear a scientific theory that's contradictory to the way we think, and man, we get scared. And, and we feel like, gosh, we've got to defend God's glory, and we've got to defend God's word. But you know what? The, the glory of God is like a lion. You don't really have to defend it. You just have to let it loose and let it defend itself, right? The word of God is like that. It's like a lion. You don't really have to defend it. Just speak it and let it and let it carry the, the, the authority and the weight that it has. We do that in our own lives. We, we look to God and we say, God, forgive the worst of my sins. Take me to heaven when I die. We trust him for our eternal salvation. Yet sometimes we have such a hard time trusting him for tomorrow. Man, God, I don't know what to do with my kids. They're, they're rebelling against me. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I'm struggling with how to lead my family or how to lead my children. I'm struggling with my marriage or I'm struggling with... We trust him for the biggest of things, our eternal salvation, but we have a hard time trusting him with the bill that's coming tomorrow. God is the sovereign creator of all things, and we can trust his power. We can trust that just like he has our eternal soul in the palm of his hands, he's got tomorrow in his hands too, and you can trust him in that. You know what else we can see inside this passage? We can see not only that God is the sovereign creator of all things, we can see that all that God creates is good. All that God creates is good. You know what that means for us? It means we can trust His promises. It means we can trust His promises. His promises are true. When God God promises that He will forgive us, He'll keep that promise. You know why? Because it's a good promise. Did you see all those things? Day one, God created light and darkness, and the light and the darkness was good. And God created the heavens and the earth, the firmament, the heavens above and the waters below, and he declared that to be good. And it goes through all of these things, things that we're afraid of, right? Aren't we, aren't many of us just afraid of the dark at times? Remember being a kid growing up, you're just, my mom, she just, She loved it when I was about three or four years old. All she had to do was say the word spook, spook. And I could be around the corner and I would hear it and it would terrify me. And she loved doing it in the middle of the night when it was dark, spook. And I'd just come running. She loved it because I ran to her arms, right? Spook. God says that darkness that he created when he created it, it was good. And those animals that sometimes we're afraid of, you know, the, the things that, Jaws, right? The shark <laughs> in the water. Um, I had a friend named Mark Ham. We went to the beach once, and he, would, he took this giant boom box, and he carried it up and down the beach playing the Jaws theme song. He just carried it just back and forth, just playing the Jaws theme song. He didn't smile. He didn't talk to anybody. He's just carrying it up and down the beach. And then he goes back to the room and sets it down and goes to play volleyball. And what are you doing, Mark? We're afraid of God's creation, aren't we? jaws that's going to get us. God says, no, those creatures, when I created them, they were good. You know what the biggest lie, you know what the biggest lie we believe sometimes is? You were created. Now, we've messed this up. 
haven't we? We've messed it up. But humanity, me and you, before the fall, you were created good. And when you look in the mirror in the morning and you think to yourself, well, there's this little bit of flab there and my muscles aren't quite as toned as they should be and maybe I shouldn't eat three more donuts for breakfast this morning. You know what? Before the fall, you were created. You were good. And you know what God says to you and about you after the fall? You are fearfully and wonderfully made. In the news this past week, there, there's, there's been another celebrity. They had power, they had money, they had popularity. Yet somehow inside their own life, they were so dissatisfied, they were so depressed. I don't know the nature of their struggles. I don't. But they, end up, they ended up taking their own life. And that's tragic. Because somewhere in their heart, when they looked at themselves, when they thought about their life, they thought, there's nothing there worth living for. And some of us in this room, when you look in the mirror, when you think about where you are in life, when you think about who you are, you know what you think? You think, hmm, there's nothing about me God would love. There's nothing about me God wants. There's nothing about me anyone would want. My life is, and you know what? God says, it's his promise. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And when God made you, you know what he did? He made something. <laughs> he made something good. Now we may, not may, we have. We've messed that up with our own sin. Sure, we've made mistakes. Some of those mistakes were deliberate. Some of those th- mistakes were accidental. We start this life, we start this life suffering from the curse of our sin. And it's part of where that deception comes from. And so it's the reason why we need to trust God's promises. God looks at us and says, from the beginning, I intended my, my creation of you. When I made you, I made something. You're good. I made something good. But we stepped into sin. We did it voluntarily. We rebelled against God. Next week, you're going to be able to see exactly how that began. And you're going to see how it applies to me and to you. Because we all did this. We've all stepped into sin. And because of sin, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've fallen short of that good that God originally created. And in the middle of that fall, God looks at us and he says, I'm going to make you this promise. I still will be faithful to you. Even though you've not been faithful to me, I will be your God and I want you to be my people and I will make a way for that sin to be forgiven. I will make a way for that sin to be paid for. And in that moment, when you look in the mirror and you think, that is not good, what I see in the mirror, in in your heart of hearts, when you do that thing, that is not good. You can be reminded that when God originally created humanity, he created something good. And after we fell, he made a way for your salvation and for mine. Because we're not good, right? We were created originally to be that, but we're not because of our sin. We've fallen. But God has made a way for us to be forgiven. God has made a way through his son, Jesus Christ, who really was good. He was more than good. He was godly. He was was holy. He was set apart. And he was set apart for this purpose. He was set apart so that you and I might be forgiven. 
Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. The affection of Christ Jesus is, is this, where Jesus in heaven looked to earth and he said, I can fix that. I can make a way. And so he left the culture of heaven to come to this fallen culture that we're in. He left it and he lived a perfect spotless life. And then he gave his life as a sacrifice for yours and for mine. And he makes this promise if we confess our sins. He's faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is the sovereign creator. We can trust his power. All that God creates is good. We can trust his promise. And guess what? Humanity, humanity is God's special creation in whom he delights. Humanity is God's special creation in whom he delights. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 1. Actually, it's reinforced in Proverbs chapter 8. Turn with me for just a moment to Proverbs chapter 8. And we'll see this played out. In this, sometimes in the book of Proverbs... We talk about wisdom, and wisdom kind of takes on some human characteristics to look a little bit like us. And in reality, I think oftentimes when we see hum- wisdom personified in Proverbs, oftentimes you could almost read that as being a type of Jesus. Now, that may or may not be what's happening in Proverbs chapter 8, but you can certainly see it if you read it that way. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22. Listen to this, and, and it's almost it's wisdom that's talking, but you might, you might think that this is a kind of... Maybe a type, maybe an example of who Jesus is. Verse 22, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. Now stop right there for just a second. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. See, there's this moment when the Bible's not a book of science, but when it speaks scientifically, it's accurate. All those people who think the earth is flat, right there it says the earth is a circle. How would the people who wrote Proverbs think that the earth is a circle? They thought the earth was flat back then. Why would they say a circle? Because God knows that this earth is a sphere. It's a circle. He drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, When he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters would not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master craftsman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world. Look at this. And my delight was with the sons of men. Humanity is God's special creation in whom he delights. Let me make that a little bit more personal. You, you are God's special creation. And he takes great delight in knowing your name. Actually, he takes great delight in changing your name. I told you at the very beginning that my son's name, my firstborn son, Cademan Edward, my name Chad Edward, my dad's name is Charles Edward, his dad was Oval Edward. Some of you may already know this, but that wasn't originally my father's name. He was adopted. 
Um, I like to give him a hard time because we found his biological parents at one point, and his original name was supposed to be Harley Jean. Um, excuse me, my voice always cracks when I say that. His name was supposed to be Harley Jean, and instead it became Charles Edward. And it became Charles Edward because he was adopted. He was adopted by a loving family from the time he was a little baby boy, and it changed his name. You know what else it changed? It changed his future. You know what else it changed? It changed the destination of his eternity because Oval and Winnie Balthrop, my grandparents, they were people of faith. My grandmother taught Sunday school, and he learned from the time he was young that Jesus Christ died on the cross and he rose from the dead, and that's the reason why we can be forgiven. And he inherited from my grandparents a name that was very different from his biological name, his first name. And he inherited from my grandparents a faith that I'm still passing down from one generation to the next. We've called this series A Thousand Generations. Deuteronomy 7, 9 talks about the promise of God, the covenant of God and how he passes his promises, the covenant of God for a thousand generations. And I hope to be a chain in that, a link in that chain from one generation to the next that happened because my father was adopted. God says that humanity, that you are his special creation in whom he delights. You know what? You may feel separated from him because of your sin. You may not feel like you're a part of his family at all because you know exactly how bad you've been. And you know what God says? He says, I love you anyway. You know what God says? We can trust his purpose for us because he intends to be our God and he wants us to be his people. We can trust his provision for us, his power for us. We we can trust all of those things because God looks to you and just like my father before me, he says, I intend, my desire is to adopt you into my family and when I do, I'll give you a name. And you know what that name will be? It'll be, it'll be a name, you'll be related to the one who carries the name that's above every name. You'll be, you'll be brothers and sisters with the one who is Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. And so I don't know where you stand in your faith today, but I know that Genesis chapter 1 says that God created each and every one of us, and he's got a desire for you, and that desire is a good desire. And he is the sovereign creator of all, and he's able to do something in you and through you that can't be explained because of you. And so I wonder if today you would surrender to him. I wonder if you would place your faith in him and say to your heavenly father, I'd like to have a new name. I'd like to be forgiven. Would you give yourself completely to him today and trust in the one, Jesus Christ, the one who came to save?